Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work just a little bit better. You can find all the previous episodes on our website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.com. There's lots of brilliant stuff on there. In the past, chatted to people like Seth Godin, chatted to just an incredible range of people who maybe could help you improve your work. I was really delighted when a new book landed on my desk a couple of weeks ago from someone who has written one of the things that I've returned to more than, than almost anything else. This book was by Stephen Martin, writing with Joseph Marks. And Stephen is the author of a book called Yes, which is a collaboration with a legendary social scientist called Robert Cialdini. So let's go back two steps. Robert Cialdini wrote probably one of the most important books in the, at the time, nascent field of social science. And the book's called Influence. It's not an exaggeration to say, I think it was published in 1984, it's not an exaggeration to describe it as essential. It's, it's important because it sort of created this whole new field of social science. Influence, which was subtitled The Psychology of Persuasion, was allegedly based on three years undercover work, watching the best sales people in, say, car sales, charity fundraisers, the best telephone salespeople. Much of what has followed in social science since has emulated Cialdini's approach. I think it sold, at uh, the latest time that I looked at it, it sold about three or four million copies. Cialdini's book with Stephen Martin was published 23 years later. So this was called, Yes, 50 Secrets from the Science of Persuasion. And effectively, it took the learnings of influence and showed how we could use them in the real world. Genuinely, the reason why my own book, The Joy of Work, is 30 Ways to Change Work is because I adored Yes so much and I knew that whether you know you want a book to read on the train or whether you want a book to read on the, on the bus or the loo, wherever you read your books, that short practical chapters seem to invite you to read more. And I loved Yes because it gave really clear pointers how we could take science and make it impact the real world. So this this whole uh, couple of books predated the world of nudge and behavioural insight teams. All of it predated that. When the new book arrived from Stephen, I just was was thrilled to take a look. In the interview today, we chat about Yes. There's a lot of really clear experiments in Yes that see how people respond to different wordings and, and different nudges in, in uh, different directions. Most notably, the one that we vaguely discuss 
is there are a lot of discussions about the wording in hotel bathrooms when they want to get you to to reuse towels. And we talk about that. The, the discussion moves on to the new book that Stephen has written with his co-writer, Joseph Marks. It's about how we believe some people more than others and what we can do to take advantage of that. It's less work culturally than some of these episodes, but I'm going to make that up to you and I'll explain that after the interview. So here we go, jumping straight in. This is my discussion with Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks. So I'm here today with Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks, and uh, we're going to talk about this book, Messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. First, Steve, I, I want to chat to, to you because I am in awe of your previous <laughs> book, which was Yes, which is just a wonderful, I see it as decision architecture, is it behavioural science? It's a book you wrote with Robert Cialdini. Right. And, uh, and I was just fascinated with that book. It's, it's sort of 50... I've read it twice, but it's 50 inter- interventions. It might be more now. Yeah. I think they've gone up to 60 in one of the editions or something. But it's, it's, um, it's this fantastic insight into the way that questions and challenges are framed influences the outcome. So it sort of nudges what you describe it. Yeah, well, well, it's exactly right. So I did write it with Bob uh, and another colleague of ours, Noah Goldstein, who's now a, a prof over at uh, UCL uh, Anderson Business School in in, in Los Angeles. And uh, I mean, Bob, who's a, a long-term colleague and friend of mine, we've been working together for like twenty odd years. You know, he essentially wrote the book on influence. You know, the, the psychology of persuasion was first published in nineteen eighty four. I think a lot of people don't recognize how established that book is. Um, but it was always primarily, I think, an academic book. It talked about these principles of influence and persuasion that anyone could actually use. It was largely written as a, a consumer defense book, Bruce, originally. Except Meaning that, what? What does that mean? Well, you know, you know, Bob was keen to understand what are the principles. Bob is Robert Cialdini. Yeah, yeah Robert Cialdini. So, <laughs> you know, so, so Cialdini, let's, let's, let's talk about it in that way. So, so he was interested in what are the universal effects, principles that that all influencers, be they big businesses, be they politicians, be they cults, whatever they may be, you know, universally used to get their message heard. Um, thinking that it would primarily, you know, educate, in this instance, the American public to be aware of these traits and say, look, here's how you're being essentially um, manipulated out of your hard-earned dollar, for want of a better word. So it was a consumer defense book originally when it was published. But of course, no consumers ever read it. Mm. You know, the, the people that were actually most engaged with the work were the people that were actually doing the influencing. And so it, it I, I always describe the, the publication of Influence as almost social science's Crick and Watson moment. You know, that, that moment when, oh, this is interesting. There are there's a universal science to influencing and persuading people. And, you know, I got intrigued in that because, you know, I was in business at the time when I first met Bob. And then, you know, 10 years ago, however long it was, I think it's 12 now, actually, um, we got the opportunity to write, you know, yes, which I, I guess you'd describe as the the practitioner's version of yes, uh, of, of influence rather. So influence describes all the, the scientific research into these universal principles of influence. Uh, yes, you know, we set out 50, we called it secrets from the science of persuasion. You know, you don't have to, you know, uh, you know, you don't have to necessarily look enviously at other people that seem to have this innate ability to influence and persuade. Anyone can learn these principles and use them I think, you know, importantly, ethically as well as effectively and sustainably. And yes, set out to be that practitioner's guide. And, you know, it, it did pretty well. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, we 
published the 10th anniversary edition where the publishers said, well, you know, it's 10 years old. Can you give us 10 more, you know, insights? And so that's that's the story of Yes. And uh, it's nice to hear that it, it lands well. I, I mean, I adore that book because it largely takes you on a journey through decisions, everyday decisions that we find. So, for example, right. the um, the messaging about hotels, uh, trying to get their customers to reuse towels. Right, yeah, yeah. And you go through just the, the various stages of them maybe suggesting that we'll make a donation or saying, actually, we've already made a donation to thank you. And just demonstrating that merely the way that we rephrase and reframe qu- uh, questions to people has a big impact on the decisions they finally make. Absolutely. Um, and what and what's really interesting about that is that those messages focus on the motivation necessarily as opposed to the outcome. I mean, I don't think many hotels in the world would put a card in the room that says, please reuse your towels because it saves us money. Yeah. But it actually does. Uh, so you'd think, and I think it's a really good, interesting example, that towel study that Noah led, actually, um, of how sometimes we perhaps... As in business, we don't look to to kind of social psychologists and and, and persuasion researchers for insights. You know, if you if you're a hotel chain and then, and your question is, what's the best message I put on the card in those bathrooms? You probably look to what other hotels are doing mm-hmm. you know, that share the best practice. Mm. Of course, the the challenge with best practice is it's something that everyone already knows, and so it, it kind of dulls down innovation in that regard. Um, so yeah, that was fascinating. Just tapping into that motivation and and for a hotel to say, hey, look, we've already helped the environment by, you know, contributing to this cause. You know, help us cover our expenses by mm. reusing your towels was significantly more influential and effective than simply saying do it for the sake of the environment. And, and has the science of what you learned there, have you seen it in hotel bedrooms that you've gone into yourself? Well, this is interesting. No, I've, I've seen it oh, once. really? So I stay in hotels quite a bit. Yeah. I've, I, can, I can recall, I mean, I recall one example because there is only one example, and that was in in Estonia, uh, actually, who had adopted that that sign. But this book sold a million copies. I'm yeah. astonished that no one in the hotel trade has has been look. Firstly, enchanted with the the data set that they've got. You know, they can test a thousand bedrooms every night. I know, I know. Although that's not to say that it isn't used in other environments and industries. So you know, we've used it in transport, for example, to reduce fare evasion. On, on, on trains and buses. Uh, we even used it in the government, you know, when uh, the Behavioural Insight, this was just before the Behavioural Insight team was actually set up in 2010. Uh, we were employing those same insights that we gleaned from the hotel towel study to getting people to submit their tax returns on time. Right. Um, so it is being used, but I guess we need to put more copies of yes in in hotel libraries and bedrooms, I guess. Because the immediate application for me, as someone who's sort of obsessed with fixing work and making work better, mm-hmm. was I wonder what the applications of this in a workplace are. You know, are there any ways that we could use that sort of decision architecture to change the way that people are invited to meetings or the way that they interact with the, with colleagues. It, firstly, it just opened up a whole realm of social science that I hadn't really considered before. Yeah, I think so. So I, two things come to mind, and that that's that original study where, you know, instead of saying reuse your towels for the sake of the environment, if a hotel says please reuse your towels because we've already given to a society, um, was much, much more effective. And to me, that's this idea of reciprocation. You know, if you want someone Mm. to help you, it kind of really makes sense to do something for someone else first in advance. So, you know, looking for ways in which you can help others. I I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, um, and and Cialdini would absolutely concur with this, that the most engaging, successful influencers in the workplace aren't the people that say, 
who can help me? They're the people that say, who can I help first? They look for meaningful ways to, to help, get that exchange going. So, so that's, that's, that's one way. Um, and this idea of, you know, the other um, condition in those studies, which actually surprised a lot of people, was this idea of if we put a message in the bathroom that said, most people that stay in this room before you reuse your towel, uh, reuse their towels, that had the biggest effect of all. Right. Um, which is surprising if you think about it, because if you go into a hotel, you probably don't really want to think about what mm. the person that stayed in the room before you uh, got up to. So I'm just thinking about that in the organizational workplace. You know, you know, these idea of our perception of how others behave drives a lot of our own behavior. So, you, you know, if you go into an office and they say things like, ah, oh, meetings never start on time in this place. Well, they never will then, because right. if that's the perception, you know, we found that in fare evasion as well on public transport systems, you know, in Ireland, in Sydney, and in Paris as well. That if, if people, you think everyone does it. If you it. think that everyone does it, or if, if, if there's a, a large enough number of people that are doing it, it kind of makes it okay for you to do it as well. Mm. Not only is it perhaps the approved thing to do, in some instances, and we've actually got research on this, uh, some people actually even think that it might be the morally correct thing to do right. as well. So. There's, there's immediately, you know, a, a couple of opportunities. But you're right, you know, in the same way as people write to you about your show and talk about how they've employed some of these insights that they've they've heard from your previous guests, we get quite a lot of, you know, emails and calls from people that have essentially put yes into action in, in the workplace. It's fantastic. Amazing. And, and bringing Joseph in now, because what you say there leads into some of what's in this book, Messengers. So the book talks about when certain messages land and why sometimes certain circumstances, whether they're sort of the hard characteristics or the soft characteristics, can make us heed a messenger. And one of the stories you tell in that was the, um, about Rasputin. And when we feel any connection, so it's, it's to your hotel room there, when we feel any connection ourselves with an individual, no matter how heinous their offences, it seems to soften our response to, to their, their crimes. I, I, do you want to explain the Rasputin one? Broadly, messengers is that, um, you know, looking to the messenger rather than the message itself to determine whether we should attend and listen to what they're saying. Um, and, and there are two kind of ways that you can achieve this. One is through having status and the other is through connectedness. And the Rasputin story is quite a nice example of how a small trivial connection can actually have a consequence on how we view people. Um, and so uh, essentially it was a story about a study led by Robert Cialdini and John Finch over at Arizona State University. And they essentially gave people information about Rasputin's life. And Rasputin, like you say, is not the most likable character in history. He's got a pretty bad uh, rap sheet. Um, and so people read this. They formed a negative view of him, as you kind of would, um, except half of their participants were given an information sheet on the front cover, which just said a few more details, including his name and his birth date. And what the researchers did was surreptitiously change the birth date to match the participant's own birthday. And you know when, I mean, the month and day, not the year, obviously. Okay. But yeah, you know that course. feeling when you, you say, oh, we've got the same birthday, no way. And there's that kind of moment of connection and bonding. And that's exactly what happened. And then when subsequently asked to rate Rasputin's character on a few traits, including kind of how pleasant he was, how good a character he was, they were, you know, they didn't suddenly elevate him to hero status but they viewed him in less negative terms than the group who had not got this connection. And I think what's really fascinating about this study is that a small 
kind of inconsequential bonds like a shared birthday can warp how we then view somebody's kind of real life achievements and history. And so just imagine what happens in real world situations where we know less about their life history and we're relying more on kind of more consequential bonds like their background, their similar attitudes and views to those that we have. I think these effects play out in, in real life every day at a very strong level. Are there are other examples of, of trivial things that have somehow made a messenger seem more, will you t- say, describe forging a better connection? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's literally hundreds of them. Um, but I think, you know, to, to, to bring it maybe to a, to a, you know, a workplace context for a moment, you know, let, let's think about that scenario that we've all uh, been in where, you know, that time when you have an idea and you go into the office and you tell a few of your colleagues about it and they all look at you a little bit strangely and they think, well, I'm not really sure if that's a good idea. And then a couple of days later, maybe a couple of weeks later, someone else comes along and says the exact same mm. thing that, you know, you presented as an idea a few days previously. And suddenly the idea that was roundly rejected when you presented it is now enthusiastically embraced mm. because someone else has actually, you know, said the same thing. So that essentially is the the basis behind this, this two and a half year research program that Joe and I have been involved in in Messengers. How is it possible that two people can say the exact same thing, yet it land with one audience and not with mm. another? And, and so you're right, you know, that... Maybe that's just, oh, I, I trust this person more, or they're a little bit more charismatic, or, you know, um, they're warmer, or they've expressed the vulnerability. Those are the kind of connected traits, if you like. But in some instances, it might just be their position, or, you know, they, they just happen to be a bit more attractive, or they, they've got a higher position in the organization. Um, none of those uh, things... Is it unfair to say that sometimes, unconsciously, it might be their gender? Because yeah. the, what you described there is something that you often hear women say, I swear I said that, and now a man has said it, and it's been accepted. Yeah. So it, it seems like there might be some unconscious elements that, unfortunately, make that even worse. I, I'd go so far as to say the, the vast majority of them, Bruce, are. Um, you know, we make these, you know, snapshot decisions mm. about messengers often in a matter of milliseconds, uh, on the basis of something that characteristically has absolutely nothing to do with the content or the wisdom of what they're saying. You know, you know, we, we see one thing, I say, oh, you know, he or she is tall or they appear competent or, I, you know, I, I like them more. And so as a result of that, I make all sorts of other associations mm. about the content of their message regardless of its, its its truth or or its wisdom or its foolishness. I think that's probably the powerful thing about this, isn't it? Because it's so visceral that I think what you yeah. describe, you describe a scene at, at one stage where, you'll have to correct me on this, but um, where people are shown, it might be kids are shown who they're going to get on, along with and from their photographs. And then subsequently they rate how well they do get along with them. And seeing their photograph was a very good predictor of how well they get, which is terrifying because it's largely saying that our instinct becomes self-fulfilling. And, you know, our judgment we make about someone determines the strength of the relationship we we allow ourselves to form with them. Correct me on how I've remembered that story. Well, I think there's a couple of studies that we talk about that are similar to this, where one is they showed people a kind of summer camp, um, members of the other, of the group who they just met. And what they found was their brain activity um, predicted 
who they would end up forming friendships with later in the group. But what was remarkable about that study was that you could predict who I would be friends with by looking at their brain activity as well right. um, when they looked at a picture of me. So it's the question of they seem to like me just based on a first impression. I And so therefore, I'm more inclined to end up being friends with them because probably they're going to express some warmth and friendliness when they interact with me. I'm going to be receptive to that and I'm going to end up liking them too and forming a friendship. But there's also a whole heap of studies where they show these kind of pictures about various types of people, including CEOs and politicians. And what they do there is they take actual data about outcomes, for example, political election outcomes, or how profitable the CEO's company is. And they correlate these kind of naive participants' ratings who don't know the CEO, they don't know the politician. Um, and they just say to them, how competent does this person look? Or who looks the more competent? And they find that um, in about 70% of cases, then they choose the person who was actually elected um, in a political contest, mm. um, just on the basis of how competent their face looks in a photo. Um, and in the case of CEOs, it was there was a correlation between who looked competent and how profitable the company was. Um, so it really shows that we're relying on these superficial indicators of competence because, you know, it's tricky to actually assess genuine competence. So we do what humans do, do best and we make these quick judgments um, automatically in a, in a matter of milliseconds. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's scratching below the surface. One of the things that comes out of this is good-looking people uh, get better pay rises. They're more likely to get jobs. If, if, a, if an attractive person, male or female, puts their <laughs> photograph on with their CV, with their resume, right. they're more likely to get called back for interviews. None of these things are... are traits that humans would be proud that we're demonstrating, but probably it's the reality of, of what we're actually doing. Exactly. I mean, it, 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 it's a sad thing to, um, you know, to, to conclude, but it's a powerful one. You know, uh, those uh, amongst us in society that are perhaps born a little bit more genetically fortunate than others are afforded a, a huge advantage in life. You know, um, economists have gone so far as to put measures on that advantage. You know, perhaps 10 to 15% overall lifetime greater earnings than a, a comparable average looking peer. Um, you know, from a very, very early age in life, um, you know, the, the those that are, are beautiful uh, are paid greater attention. You know, even, this is the really interesting thing, even parents um, of, of these babies will actually pay, um, you know, less attention to their own baby if it's, if it's an average looking one and, and, and attend more to other parents in the room. Right. So if it's, if it's you, know, you know, if that's the, the, the strength of that, you know, interaction between our attention and an attractive messenger, uh, and it occurs at a, you know, parent-child level, no surprise that, you know, teachers, you know, are more likely to give, you know, slightly higher grades to attractive kids. They're, you know, when they apply for jobs in the workplace, you know, if, if their CV uh, has their picture attached, they're much, much more likely to invite to be invited back to an interview. Um, those that are less attractive, the advice would be don't put a picture uh, on your CV because it will actually do you a disservice compared to if, a, if there's no picture at all. There's a, a really interesting set of Italian studies that actually show that. So yeah, being, being born beautiful is a distinct advantage most of the time. Most of the time. You mentioned that there are times where it actually yeah. can alienate members of the same sex. It, yeah, it can. Yeah. So there's some interesting stories um, and actually studies that look at, um, you know, how other women perhaps react uh, to, to attractive 
uh, women in, in, in their environment. Um, uh, that's, uh, yeah, worthy of a read, I think. So, so, so the, you mentioned two parts of these, so status and connectedness, <clears throat> where status, quite often, there are various things that either make us seem more competent or respectable, or how could anyone use this? If you find yourself now, you're sort of working somewhere, you want to land your messages, you want to get your messages across, you maybe want more senior people to, to buy into what you're saying. What are the tips that anyone could use to build their own apparent status, if not their their sort of literal seniority. Yeah, no, I think we have tips for both building status and connectedness. And, you know, the, the kind of obvious implication would be, one, to know how to kind of think about your own story. Um, but two, that, you know, maybe the, the implication would be to go around telling everyone it and how great you are. And actually that's going to come at a cost to your kind of connectedness and likability because we don't like self-aggrandizing, boastful kind of people. Um, and in fact, you know, we... we often will gravitate towards those who have kind of shown respect to us rather than those who kind of try and self-promote themselves. Um, but one thing that, you know, we can do that was shown in a, a series of studies by Jeff Pfeffer um, and colleagues uh, over at Stanford University is to actually have somebody else present those credentials on our behalf. And even if it's a kind of agent who has a financial stake in the matter, it does seem to hold an effect and it boosts competence without having the detriment of reducing our own likability because we've not engaged in the self-promotion ourselves. I really like the estate agent example here. Yeah, and I should leave Steve because that was his study, you know, inspired by Jeff. So this is just sim a simple thing that anyone can do. So explain to me what happened and yeah, how they so, did it. Uh, so I, I saw Jeff's study just before it was actually published um, and I kind of thought, that's kind of interesting. And I happened to be working with a a group of estate agents at around the same time. And one of them suggested, well, what, what would happen if we talked differently about our colleagues? You know, when a, when a customer called to perhaps find out some information about how they might sell their house. And so we did this little study here in London. Um, and the only thing that we changed in the study, Bruce, was the way in which an estate agent was introduced. So if someone called and said, you know, I'm interested in selling my property or, you know, renting my property out, you know, a receptionist would typically answer the phone and they would say, well, let me put you through to Joe. You know, he's our head of sales. And that would be it. And nothing unusual about that. That was typically what happens in any agency that you actually went to. But the study we actually did was we, we just said to the receptionist, well, what if you gave a piece of information about why Joe was an expert before you then put the call through? So, you know, let me put you through to Joe. He's, you know, been selling property in this area for 15 years. He's a member of the London Estate Agent Guild, if such a thing exists. By the way, all this information was true. You know, we weren't kind of, man, you know, mm. manipulating or manufacturing Pumping information. But what was really interesting was the impact it subsequently had on that conversation that then took place. Because in the context of Joe now being an expert, people listened differently. Uh, they were much more likely to open their minds to uh, any recommendations. And when we actually measured the impact, one of the things we found was that there was about a 20% increase in the number of people that were willing for that agency to go and value their property right. and about a 15% increase in, in, in contracted sales at the end. So just, I, I think this speaks to a broader point that actually, you know, one way that we can increase our influence in our places of work, particularly when we perhaps don't have that you know, that title or that position in the organizational chart that commands that people mm. should listen to us is to arrange uh, and, and be, you know, careful um, about how we're introduced. You know, if we do have legitimate expertise and experience, then, you know, having people talk about that 
um, you know, at the, particularly at the beginning of meetings and before we present, is super important, really important. And it's to your point, Joe, that like to do this yourself, to to sort of peacock your experiences would be a bad thing, but to get someone else to do it, that seems to enhance us as a messenger. Yeah, I'm always reminded of those, um, again, it's a situation that lots of us have been in. That situation, you know, when you go to a meeting at work and there's like 12 or 15 people around the table and someone says, well, before we kick off, let's all go around the room and introduce ourselves. That's a disastrous way to start a meeting mm. um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that most people, thankfully, aren't going to stand up and say, well, I'm in the room because I'm brilliant at this and I'm great at this and you should listen to me. You know, People aren't willing to do that, rightfully so. Um, and so invariably what happens is that most people just go around and basically introduce themselves in exactly the same way as the words on their business card would, you know, I'm Steve from IT, for example. Mm. So it's it's not a helpful way in that regard. The other reason why it's not a really good idea is when you're when you know you're about to speak in public, particularly in a group of strangers, you're really not paying attention to anything that's being said because it's almost like your attention is internally mm. focused. And you think, oh, God, I've got, to, I've got to say something. So everybody that comes before you that's perhaps telling you about their expertise, you're not really listening to it because you're thinking, oh, my God, my turn is next, mm. that next-in-line effect. So for both those reasons, anyone that starts a meeting that says, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves, really just – Stop doing Creating that. dead time. Yeah, get the most senior person or the person that's in charge of the meeting to explain why everybody in the room is legitimately president uh, is, is legitimately present and the reasons why they, they they they're there. You know their expertise that elevates the expertise in the mm. room for everybody. Tell me this: How much of a international skew is there on this? I watch a lot of. I'm, I'm obsessed with American politics, and so during the American uh, Democratic primary, a lot of the candidates. Uh, Kamala Harris brings to mind, a lot of the candidates do a considerable amount of peacocking of their own achievements. I did this, I did this, I did this. And to a British eye, I find it deeply uncomfortable. In fact, it sort of disqualified some of them for me. I just find it so awkward. So are some nations more comfortable with that, projecting their own experience rather than asking others to do it for them? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's worth noting that Jeff Pfeffer's studies were conducted in the US, the, the kind of research spawned there. So it's still an effect in the US, but we have a kind of different threshold depending on the culture um, and to, depending on how willing we are to kind of self-promote and have others do so. And in the US, notably, they're kind of more accepting of it than we are where we're kind of intolerant of it. And and that comes down to a kind of, a kind of bragging, individualistic, cultural thing. You see it particularly in kind of Sweden and Scandinavian countries, they're much less accepting than we are here. Um, and, and the kind of desire and show of status is markedly reduced. We had the, the example of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who would go around saying he was worth what a Ferrari was worth, or something along those lines. Um, so, I mean, there are always exceptions, but I think it does, it does vary. I mean, another good example, though, of there's a broader thing here, Bruce, in terms of essentially how people talk about us or how we talk about ourselves. And so, you know, we, we largely conclude in this book that there are two types of messenger in society. There are hard messengers who essentially want to signal their status. Um, and that increases potentially the likelihood that their message will be listened to and potentially accepted. Uh, but, but then you have softer messengers, you know, th those that, you know, essentially signal some connectedness in some way. And there's another way in which we can actually signal connectedness by talking about ourselves. And that's to tell the story 
about our history, our backstory. One of the things that those democratic debates do is they afford the candidates the opportunity to talk about the humble upbringings mm. in which they came from. Carmela Harris would talk about, you know, her situation, you know, being a, a young black woman in California coming through the ranks to rise to, you know, a, 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 a state um, Senate position. You know, similarly, Biden would talk about his history, you mm. know, th- th- these kind of things as well. And actually, you find that in, uh, that plays out in all societies. Um, you know, think about talent shows on on, on, on TV. Um, there are suggestions that, uh, you know, performers in uh, things like Britain's Got Talent, The X Factor, these kind of things, if, if they have kind of an engaging, connecting backstory where they've overcome the odds. Some people go so far as to suggest that actually that's as important as the the talent they have themselves. So it does play out in different ways, you know, um, but I think you're right. You know, essentially, you know, in the US, they do seem a little, they seem a little bit more comfortable in signaling their, mm. their kind of status over their connectedness. And I think over this side of the world, perhaps we would go connectedness first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's not even just this side. I mean, there's some fantastic studies done comparing um, Chinese children and Canadian children. And okay. even at 11 years old, they understand the cultural rules. And so once they've just done a good deed, Canadian children go and tell everyone about it. And Chinese children keep it to themselves because right. humility is kind of highly valued and status signaling would be seen yeah. as, as worse. Um, so you see it from a very early age in this kind of cultural context. Too. More from my discussion with Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks after this. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now back to the chat with the authors of Messengers. And and one of the things in your soft messengers, um, you've got sort of warmth, charisma, but you've also got vulnerability, uh, which which I know is something that's very, it's been a a very big topic for the last sort of three or four years. So I think in in the soft messages, you've got warmth, vulnerability, charisma, trustworthiness. How do those things interact? Can we try and sort of foster a sense of vulnerability or should we even try to think about it like that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's quite a loaded word and... um, 
you know, not always clear what people mean by it. So we try and kind of define a little bit what we mean and how it can be kind of an effective messenger strategy. Um, so the first is, you know, willing to take an, a risk that puts, you know, maybe by self-disclosing some information or signaling a want or need that puts us in um, a situation where, you know, we might stand to gain if, if people are receptive and, for example, agree with what we want and agree to do that. But it could also, you know, for example, in confessing a romantic intent go badly and we find actually we're rejected or even in a less kind of s severe situation, just our message is rejected and, you know, that, that hurts. We don't want that. So it's safer often to keep our guard up and not really express that kind of thing, um, to keep uh, some barrier from people. And actually, Brene Brown, who's very famous for her TED Talks, but also books, says that the key to social connection and hu real human connection is to be able to connect on that human level by expressing some vulnerability, to let people in, to show who we are and to say what we want, this kind of thing, um, and communicate our, our true selves, I guess, in a kind of airy fairy way. There's an interesting thing that because Brene Brown has become so popular though, I've observed a degree of performative vulnerability, which doesn't feel authentic. Yeah. And I think it's to your point, like it's such a um, it's such a sort of soft science in the sense that there's nothing linear about you do this, you get this, you know, like the human I, interactions yeah, is so complex. I think you're exactly right about that. That's the classic example of where, you know, a, a known trait is suddenly exploited as a mm. tactic. You know, it says, oh, well, you know, there seems to be some interesting research on this or someone's written an engaging book about this. How can I essentially... Uh, turn this into a technique or a tactic. It's similar to that thing which says that as soon as a metric becomes a target, it ceases to be an effective metric. Yeah. And it's exactly that, isn't it? As soon as we identify that, that vulnerability is a desirable thing, people then seeking to build their vulnerability somehow loses the authentic connection. Yeah, you can see it, it leaks, doesn't it? Mm. And, and so, you know, it's kind of interesting, I think, to talk about how some of these traits can be um, you know, fostered and how we could perhaps be a little bit more accomplished at using them. But the idea that we should just use them as, as, as tactics, um, especially, you know, in situations where, you know, our preferred style is not to perhaps express a vulnerability. Mm. Because that essentially what we're doing when we're expressing a vulnerability is we're essentially placing, um, you know, our, ourselves in a, in, in, in a we're, we're outsourcing our trust to someone else mm. and actually saying, I, I'm going to trust you're not going to, you know, exploit the situation, the difficulty that I'm in I, I'm in here now. Um, and it's kind of difficult for people to actually do that. So the idea that you could just like, you know, suddenly turn it into a technique, um, no, it, it comes across as inauthentic. It, it's, it's seen, it's observed, it reduces your messenger effectiveness. You're much, much more likely to be rejected as a result. I think far, far better to understand... Um, what your your main preferences or traits are across these these messenger traits? Go do the test and and, and figure out you mm. know, wh which of these are my you know my preferred styles, and and then build from a position of strength. Now um, it sort of touches into that. The I love the story of Bill Clinton uh, making an apology, and you know it's we're right in the middle of uh, the election at the moment, and. People apologising for things is something that, you know, becomes headline news. You either have apologised or you haven't. So Bill Clinton was seen in this one instance that I'll ask you to tell uh, to increase his popularity by making an apology. And uh, there was an Australian 
example next week. Do, do you want to just explain what the context when making an apology seems to work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Clinton turned up at a campaign speech um, and... You know, it was raining, it was a miserable day. So rather than just kind of get right into his speech, he started by doing something quite human, recognizing actually, you know, other people are here, they've made the effort to turn out even despite the rain, and it's probably not great for them to be in this weather. So he said, folks, I'm very sorry about the rain, um, and then just continued. And that small thing was picked up by the couple of researchers who were intrigued by it and thought probably people remembered that and it framed his the rest of his speech very nicely, um, just showing that kind of care for mm. something. It's not his fault it's raining, but he can apologize for it and show kind of sympathy nonetheless. Um, and so they went to the, the streets essentially in all kinds of places um, and essentially had Confederates, uh, you know, researchers go up to people and ask, can I borrow your phone? And sometimes they would say, uh, you know, it was on picked on rainy days and they would say, oh, I'm really sorry about the rain. Do you mind if I just borrow your phone quickly? Versus just, do you mind if I borrow your phone quickly? And they found this huge uplift in the number of people who were willing to let them borrow a phone, showing, yeah, people are receptive to the message based on that small show of compassion. It's similar to the, was was making copies in Influence or yeah. in Yes? Yeah, I know it was, it was in Influence. This yeah. is Alan Langer's studies yeah. back in the 70s. That in this instance, um, it, it was a request made and then the reason, you know, can I make these copies, please? Because I have, so someone was you know, queuing for his, their photo. Yeah, yeah, you know, under what circumstances would people be willing to, uh, you know, allow you to jump in front of the the line at, at the copier? And what they found was that if you had a reason, people were much more likely. What they also found was that the reason actually didn't need to make sense. You in know, some cases, like, someone said, "I need to make copies." Yeah, can I, can I jump in front of you to use the photocopier because I have to make a photocopy? And it's just <laughs> like, yeah. So it's, that's Ellen Langer's uh, original work. What's interesting there is, is that was a reason that came after the request. In this instance, it's an apology, and in Clinton's case, for something that he has absolutely no control over before he then mm. makes his case in that instance. But again, it's another example of how, you know, we are essentially communicating some connectedness mm. before we make the request. You know, you know, another example that we, we talk about in the book, which is uh, fascinating to me, is, is what I, I think will become a future classic study uh, where researchers go to, you know, in, in, in train stations and, and, and busy places where there's, there's queues. Under what circumstances would you let someone kind of jump in front of you in the security line, say, at an, air, an, an airport? Uh, and what the researchers find, without any surprise to anyone, I guess, is that if you offer people money, they're more likely to let you jump in front of the line. And the more money you offer, the more successful you're likely to be. What was surprising to us, though, in this evidence and research was that no one ever took the money. Right. So it's almost like the money was a signal of someone's vulnerability. So, well, okay, Bruce, if you're willing to, like, give me 50 pounds to jump in front of a, the line at an airport, you really must be in a vulnerable situation. So that connectedness that's now been established warrants that I should let you go in front of me. And I, I won't have the money. It's just been no, proof yeah. of... Yeah, it's the money is a signal of your vulnerability. Um, and now that vulnerability is expressed and that connection exists. You know, it, it, the human thing for me to do is to say, well, of course, no, please go ahead. 
a whole section of the book is about status. And I'm very interested in the conscious and subconscious parts of status. So, you know, I've been thinking more and more about how power is disinhibiting. People who are high status, high power, often behave in ways where low status people don't behave. And, and the repression that that forces in low status people often can be exhausting for them. It can cause depression for them. I'm just interested in the elements of status and why it plays such a big part in how we interpret messages and what lessons we can draw from that, really. Yeah, well, I think there's a, a number of kind of inferences we make. So it's, um, you know, states are typically thought about in the workplace because there's this kind of hierarchy, clear hierarchy and organizational structure where those at the top make the important decisions. They have um, power to often hire and fire. Uh, they can make um, set group norms and teach. And, uh, you know, people respect and admire those at the top, often give them more credit um, for successes and failure than they deserve. And that's known as the romance of leadership. Um, this this idea that we um, attribute more than is, is deserving to them. Um, and, you know, there, there are kind of various things that go along with being at the top. One is the kind of as I say, kind of power aspect where, you know, they make for a good ally and a fierce foe. They have the power to um, promote or pay us more or or set, um, set our lives on a certain track. Um, but there's also other parts to it, right? So they might have some expertise we can learn from. Um, we might think that probably they are the most experienced and knowledgeable person uh, to speak to and will give good advice and will have good information. Um, yeah, they might also have good friends and, and connections that they can introduce us to. Um, so there's a, there's a lot going on there. And uh, I, yeah, I think it's absolutely true that when in those kind of relationships, there are certain dynamics that form. And one is, uh, um, as you say, the, the kind of repression of those below and the kind of free volitional activities of those at the top who are very... Um, carefree about doing whatever they want and saying whatever they want. They speak more, they speak faster, they don't mind interrupting. Um, that was something we saw in the Clinton v. Trump debates where Clinton was often cut off by Trump um, halfway through a statement who was just more than happy to interrupt because he felt in a dominant position. Mm. And you can see that, you perceive that as a viewer. You attribute dominance there. Um, on but that is that basis. always possible? Because in those debates, he loomed over her quite yeah, often yeah, yeah. as well. And and at the time, there was a, there was a lot of um, discussion about it. And I mean, I think ultimately he won with white females. So you know, it, it wasn't necessarily something that that cost him. But yeah, I mean, I it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because when you think about dominant characters and the way that they behave, that kind of dispositional personality that they have, almost that inherent desire and need to win at all costs, you, you think about that type of character and you think, why would I want to listen to someone like that? You know, what, what, what purpose do they have in a modern day society? It's not like we live in caves anymore and we need kind of, you know, strong dominant leaders to protect us from warring tribes. We're not in that environment anymore. But I think, you know, there's a couple of things that are going on there. So the first is that, you know, there is a hangover from those those days of, you know, when perhaps we didn't have the type of contemporary collegiate type of communities and societies that we actually do now. And so our brains perhaps haven't caught up with that idea mm. that in certain circumstances, you know, those, those dominant overbearing leaders do have a role. And one such circumstance is uncertainty. Um, you know, if we are feeling unsure about something, if we are anxious, if there's some sort of fear, 
Um, there's really good research that actually suggests, Bruce, that we are more inclined to then listen to and almost react favorably to the messages of a dominant personality. So, for example, in, in organizations, um, studies have shown that boards are far more likely to appoint a dominant CEO if while they're making that appointment, that organization is in some sort of distress. There's mm. uncertainty about the strategy. It's perhaps share price has fallen down. There's um, low levels of psychological uh, of safety in the organization. In those uncertain environments, the board is much, much more likely to appoint a dominant executive. Whereas the exact opposite is the case if an organization is doing pretty well. There's clear direction, there's high levels of psychological safety, there's a clear strategy. People are largely you know, very happy with the performance. In those instances, those exact same boards will be uh, more inclined to uh, adopt a, and, and appoint a more connected less dominant type of, of message, And it goes to elections as well, right? Well, it does. So it's so, like fresh-faced candidates seem to do well in optimistic times. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so it's no surprise mm -hmm. if you look at, you know, perhaps some of the, the dominant characters that are, you know, essentially hogging the headlines and that's what dominant characters do. Um, often what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll provoke and remind people of that uncertainty, that fear, that, I mean, just look at Trump's inauguration speech when he talked about the graveyards of the Midwest, you know, and, you know, essentially what they're doing, these dominant leaders, is they're creating these groundswells of anxiety mm. and uncertainty where they know that their dominant character is most likely to thrive and be listened to. So on the, on the basis of that, you'd have said, looking at the American 2020 election, Pete Buttigieg, one of his biggest challenges would be as a fresh face 30 something he doesn't look like he's cast for an election in difficult times no he doesn't um you know sometimes <laughs> looking and sounding right is often more important than actually being right or having a good you know substantive case or, or message to make you know one of the things that you know um we thought we'd get into it, but we never did in the book. At no point in this book are we ever concerning ourselves with what people are saying. Because mm. it does seem, Bruce, to me to be the case that increasingly there's so much, you know, uncertainty. Uh, you know, we, we can't know what the right, you know, answers to really tough questions are. Who would be a good prime minister? You know, is Brexit good for the UK? It's impossible to answer these questions. And so, you know, increasingly we're looking to essentially the traits of the people that are delivering messages rather than, you know, investigating the, 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 the content and the wisdom of what they're actually saying. That's right. It seems, you know, it's an essential understanding because sometimes we might find ourselves saying the most important thing here is the substance of the message. And your overall finding of the book is think that at your peril. If you don't make yourself aware that it's not just the message, but it's how it's delivered and by whom it's delivered, that seems to be a critical component as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, so two things. So first of all, I think we, we often kid ourselves that we do have the time and, and the capacity to kind of understand everything and take on board everything that's being said and come to some, you know, considered decision about whether we should vote for this person or that person, of appoint this executive, that executive, listen to this person. I don't buy that at all um, because we just simply don't have the time. Uh, you know, back in the 1960s and 1970s, there was a, a well-known Canadian media uh, named uh, McLuhan who, who actually went on record as actually saying, the medium is the message. Uh, I'm not convinced that's true anymore. I think Joe and I have, have largely concluded that these days, the messenger 
is the message. Mm. Essentially, what Joe and I have attempted to do here is actually set out the eight most important and largely universal traits that all of us, regardless of our age, our upbringing, our education, where in the world we live, what culture uh, we come from, rely upon when we are essentially asking ourselves the question, should I listen to this person? Should I listen to this organization? Should I listen to this political party? Should I listen to this platform? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. There's, it's going to be hard for me to, to come to a, um, an objective view about that. So what are the traits that I'm using to determine um, the easiest way to answer that question? And they are these eight message effects, the, the four hard and the four soft traits. So guys, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. I think the contribution of helping us learn about social science and, and how it's shaping the world we're in. So thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Have you done your test yet, Bruce? I haven't done my test okay, yet. Okay, so messengersthebook.com and go find out which your primary and secondary uh, messenger trait is. Doesn't cost, five minutes, completely free. Perfect, I'll let you know how I get on. Please. <laughs> right, cheers, Bruce. Thank you to Stephen and Joseph. Now, I mentioned what's coming next. From next week, there's going to be a new series of the podcast called Fix Your Work. It'll be in your normal podcast feed, but I'm going to be trying to spend some time going in a more step-by-step -step approach through a method that anyone can use to fix their culture and, and improve their work. So each week you'll find further notes, downloadable PDFs and exercises to do with your team. And I like to see it as sort of a, a compact, self-contained unit. So if you like it, share it with colleagues and, you know, maybe sort of come back and, and work through the exercises I create. What we're going to be looking at in the first episode, looking at the specifics of what is company culture, when it exists, why it's sometimes hard to, to scale to whole companies and what we can learn from the companies that have done it well. Next, we're going to go into a specific case study of what Microsoft did to reinvent their culture. And I think that's really, really critical. Microsoft has gone through a renaissance in the last decade, back to being the biggest company in the world. And how did they do it? How did they change culture at a company level? And I've got some brilliant discussions as part of that. Uh, we're going to be looking at team culture, the specifics of the science into this, and chatting to some incredible experts there. Then, you know, along the way, I'm going to be speaking to some incredible writers. I'm going to be speaking to Matthew Syed. A few of you might have read Black Box Thinking, his latest work, Rebel Ideas, is fantastic. I'm going to be talking to Chip Conley, who is the modern elder at Airbnb, a, a guy brought in to bring experience to a youthful company. I'm going to be chatting to Alex Sujong Kimpong, who is the author of a new book about the four-day week. I'm going to be chatting to a woman who uh, went into Facebook and and was eventually fired uh, for standing up to Sheryl Sandberg. And then I'm going to be chatting to Dan Cable, who is a former guest on the show, professor at London Business School, uh, has a brilliant insight into the world of work culture. So I'm really excited about that. Hopefully you'll love that one. And that's starting next week. So look out for that in your feed. As ever, I always welcome your response, your feedback, your tweets, your, your links in. Please do feel free to share this with other people. I really love when people say that they've, they've found the benefit of having these discussions in their teams. Thank you. I've been Bruce Daisley. Speak to you next week.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 